Good morning. As Jeff said, I'm Matt. I'm a pastor here at uh, SunWest. It's good to be with you. Uh, we are starting a, starting a new series called The Art of Neighboring. And it seems kind of odd that we would do a series on neighboring. Like, isn't that just like something everybody knows how to do? And uh, I think we've kind of forgotten how to neighbor in this age of uh, technology and social networking and in suburbia, you know, where somebody drives home and they drive into the garage, they close the garage door, uh, you hardly see your neighbors. It's like, how do we actually be neighbors in a world uh, like this? And so we're going to take a very practical look at what it means uh, to neighbor and the biblical mandate behind neighboring. Maybe you've had a hard time getting to know your neighbors because of those reasons. They, you never see them. I got two neighbors on each side of me. I don't even know if anybody lives there, to be honest. Um, and when I, when I see them, and, and on both sides, none of them speak English. And so when I see them and I try and engage them, they, uh, they, they don't look at me for very long before they just look down. Uh, and so it's difficult. And, and so, you know, we, I park on my driveway, uh, mostly because my garage is really messy and I can't park in there. But when I park in my driveway, it forces me to actually be out, be out in, the, uh, in the lawn, in the yard. Uh, we don't have some blinds on our windows. We have, a, we have this huge window upstairs uh, that's like six feet long. And, uh, and we leave it wide open. It looks right across into our neighbor's window. And they have blinds on their windows. I can't understand why they won't open their blinds. We got this huge window there. I walk around in my underwear upstairs. And I'm, I'm totally available to my neighbors. But they will not open their blinds. I don't understand it. But the art of neighboring, it's, it is a difficult thing. We often do community, not in our communities. We do communities in third spaces like Starbucks or workplaces or church community. Uh, but what does it actually mean to be a neighbor? This, I live in Chaparral. That's the community that I live in. And uh, we got a, a global news story, I don't know if you saw, from my community. So just to give you a picture of the type of neighbors that, that live actually right around me, uh, check out this news story that was on last week. On a warm, sunny day after months of snow, no better way to spend it than outside. But the sound of children playing is soon interrupted. Corey Reed and his family moved to the southeast community of Chaparral two years ago and say it wasn't long before the problem started. Even when they're not home, they just leave the house and leave their music on. So we have to listen to it. Then last week, Corey captured this video when he first noticed the alarm. And that noise goes on every time they're out here. The high-pitched signal, the last straw for the Reed family, who has posted the video on social media, filed a complaint to city bylaw and reached out to community mediation. We've tried to be the bigger people. We've, you know, we, we tried that first. Um, and then we've also tried to, you know, kind of fight fire with fire. You know, if they're making noise, we'll make noise. So I don't know what we do from here. Global News tried to speak with the neighbor. That dog barks. You see that dog over there, that dog over there? They all bark. So There's a, a law now that you have to uh, control your dog's bark. But it has nothing to do with your neighbors? 
With summer around the corner, noise complaints in Calgary are only expected to ramp up. And in some instances, violators could be hit with a fine between $250 and $500. For the Reed family, they're just hoping to find some middle ground so everyone can get a little peace and quiet. Trace Nagai, Global News. That is my neighborhood, representing. Uh, and I'm sure my neighborhood is not... A not the only one like that. Sometimes neighboring can be difficult. We got neighbors right out the backyard that um, often, as soon as the weather gets warm, they're in their hot tubs and they're uh, being loud and uh, having a good time until all hours of the night. And so how do you be a good, a good neighbor? There's a story uh, in Luke chapter 10, and it uh, begins like this in verse uh, 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to the test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Uh, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your what? Your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. You got it right. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this is the, con the context that uh, begins a story. Uh, but just really quickly, this, this man's an expert in religious law, probably has memorized, if he uses that term, expert in religious law, Pharisee, someone who's pretty much memorized the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, he knows his Bible. He knows what God's word says. And he's asking Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And, and he probably feels pretty good about himself that he answers correctly. To love God, love neighbor. But then it says, and he wanted to justify his actions. He wanted to find a loophole. He wanted to get let off the hook. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? And instead of just telling the man, Jesus tells a story that went something like this. Once upon a time, <clears throat> there lived a Jewish businessman. His name was Levi. He had a family business. It was a, the jewelry business. He'd lived in Jerusalem for generations. His dad was a, was a businessman in the jewelry business. His grandfather before him. And on and on it went. Levi was a good man. He kept the law. He went to synagogue every Sabbath. He went to the temple as often as he could. He was a devout for his religion. And he was proud to live in Jerusalem, the city that had the temple. He loved God. He loved the poor. He loved Israel. And he hated Samaritans. Well, that's strange for us to think about, isn't it? Hating Samaritans. What do we say? What do we say when somebody, uh, our car breaks down on the side of the road? Somebody pulls up and helps us. What do we call them? A what? A good Samaritan. We might even say, oh, he was a real Samaritan when he did this or this. It assumes the person was good. We only think of Samaritans as good. 
But the audience that this story was first told to, nobody thought that way. In fact, they didn't believe there was such a thing as a good Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. They hated them more than they hated the Romans, and they hated the Romans a lot. You see, there were a corruption. They took the, the Jewish faith, that, that true faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they mixed it with other religions from around the area, from different countries, and they blended it together and defiled that one true religion. An abomination. You know, when the story is found, just a few chapters or just a few verses before, there's a moment where Jesus and his disciples are going to go to, going to, go to a town in Samaria. And they, and they enter the town, and they're not really welcomed. And so uh, James and John, who, are, uh, who get wound up quickly, they say, Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven and blast this village out. Like, let's burn it to the ground. Jesus says, no, let's just leave. <laughs> let's go to a different town. That's the kind of response that they had to villages in Samaria. So back to Levi. You know, he loved God. He loved Israel and he hated Samaritans. You know, he'd, been, he'd actually been part of this vigilante mob that had headed to Samaria and done some unkind things. And it's actually a true story from around this period of time. There'd been a group of people traveling through Samaria to come to Jerusalem for Passover. And they'd spend the week of Passover in Jerusalem. And as they're traveling through, they stopped in a town in Samaria. And some altercation, not really sure what went on, but things kind of went sideways. And one of the Jewish men were killed. And the rest of the group carried on. And once that news traveled and made its way to Jerusalem, people got riled up. So much, in fact, they put together a mob and they headed back to that village. And they killed a lot of people. It got so out of hand that the Romans actually had to send soldiers in to, to quiet it down, to calm it down, to keep the peace, and to send those Jews back to Israel. True story. Levi, he was part of that group. He didn't, uh, he didn't talk about the details, but anytime something was mentioned about that town or about that event back in history, he would say, those Samaritans got what they deserved. Twice a year, Levi would travel on business to Jericho. Jericho was 18 miles or so away from Jerusalem, and he'd go through Samaria. It was a full-day trip. 18 miles is a hard trip. So he'd, twice a year for business, he'd pack up his donkey He'd load it up with supplies, with the things he needed, uh, have his money to do his business dealings, and he'd get on his donkey and travel. And this one time, he was about halfway through his, uh, his travel to get there uh, in, in the middle of Samaria, and he, uh, is, he's, he's going through a canyon, like one of those narrow canyons where the path really gets tight, and it's uh, steep on each side. And he's traveling through this area, and out comes four bandits, armed and ready to attack. And he realizes, I'm in big trouble. This isn't going to go well. So he starts to try and talk them down. Hey, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a good man. I have no harm here. I don't want to cause any harm here. Maybe we can make a deal. I'll, I, I'm happy to give you whatever he knows. The only thing he can hope for is to talk his way out and maybe escape with his life. 
maybe escape with his life. As he's talking, suddenly he's hit from behind over the head and everything goes dark. He's left unconscious on the side of the road. No idea how, he lay, how long he laid there, but he finally woke up. His donkey was gone. His stuff was gone. His money was gone. Even his clothes were gone. He was lying naked in a pool of sticky blood. He tried to get up, but his ribs were broken. Cuts and a gash. He could feel a gash in the back of his head. It was still warm. Blood was still coming there. He'd been left for dead, all alone. Couldn't get up, bleeding. And he slipped into the darkness again. Sometime later, he woke to, to the sound of hoofs on the path. It was a, it was a donkey, clip-clop, clip-clop. He tried to focus his vision. He got his eyes open a little bit and, and looked over to who, see who it was that was coming. And, and it was a priest. He could tell priests wore these fancy outfits. And he knew right away, nobody else wears clothes like that. That's got to be a priest. And that priest was on his way to Jerusalem to work in the temple. And he thought, I'm saved. A man of God, he's going to save me. Well, that priest thinks to himself, I see that guy lying there. He's almost dead. If I help him and he dies, then our law says that I'm unclean for seven days. If I touch someone and they die or they're dead, when I'm trying to help him, I'm unclean for seven days. And then I can't do my job in the temple. I won't be allowed to come into the temple, and that's my job, so I have to do it. It's too risky for me to help. I just can't take that risk. He turns his donkey, and he swerves to the far side of the road, and he gives the donkey a little click with his feet, and the clip-clops speed up, and around he goes. And Levi drifts away again. This time he wakes to sandals and the sound of a staff on the road. Someone's walking by. Through one eye now, the other one's swollen right shut. Through one eye, he, he, he looks up and he sees through the blood that's still kind of coming through. And he sees a man and he recognizes him as well from the temple as being somebody else who works there. He's called a Levite. And Levite was kind of a little bit uh, lower on the order of clergy, but they were experts in the law. They were experts in the scriptures. They knew the scriptures inside out. And Levi, in his half-dazed, confused state, just waking up, he thinks, a Levite, he knows the law. The law tells us to take care of the downtrodden, right? I'm saved. I'm saved. He closes his eyes and waits for the Levite to come over. Well, the Levite kind of slows down, and, and he looks, and he's thinking, I don't really want to help this guy. This is a dangerous stretch of the road, obviously. I, I, I maybe need to keep going here. And he thinks, but, but oh, I'm torn. I read the scriptures. I study the scriptures. I know what they say. I need, maybe a verse is going to help me in this moment. And as he doesn't really want to help, a verse comes to mind. Proverbs 12, 21, it says, No harm 
shall come overcome the wicked, but evil shall befall the wicked. Sorry, no harm shall overcome the righteous, but evil shall befall the wicked. Well, the Bible says this, mu- this man must not be right- righteous, but rather wicked. This must be God's judgment on him for being wicked because evil has come upon him. Who am I to go against God's judgment on this man? Levi tried to call for help, but he couldn't get anything out. His throat was so dry, just barely a whisper came, and the Levite walked quickly past, not even glancing again at the man as he walks past and heads down the road. While thinking he's lost and done for good this time, Levi drifts away into the darkness a third time. Half asleep, kind of that place where you're sort of awake but not really and you're not sure if it's reality and you're kind of dreaming and he feels motion. He feels like he's moving. And he's thinking, what's going on? What's happening now? Am I awake? Am I sleeping? Am I in heaven? Am I? No, I'm on a donkey. He realizes he's on a donkey. And he's moving along the path. And he kind of comes out of that stupor and wakes up. He realizes, my arms have been bandaged and there's oil and wine been put on my cuts. They've been cleaned and I'm wrapped in a blanket. And I've been set on a donkey in a way that I can't fall off. And he kind of lifts his head up. He gets the energy to lift his head up and look to see who's leading the donkey, the man who must have helped him. And he hears a voice from the man. Oh, good, you're awake. What's your name? And he <clears throat> clears his throat a little bit and says, Levi. Where are you from, Levi? I'm from Jerusalem. Lucky for you, I came along just when I did. Levi said to him, what, what's your name? Well, my name's Issachar. Where are you from, Issachar? I'm from Shechem. And Levi thinks, Shechem. Shechem? Well, that's in Samaria. Yep. Are you a Samaritan? I sure am. And Levi passed out again. (laughs) When he woke up, he was in a bed this time. He's in an inn. Felt like he had a little more energy, and he looked around. And he realized I'm in and in, and he overheard. He overheard that same voice, that voice of Issachar, the Samaritan, and he's talking to the innkeeper. That he, he, he hears him speaking, and he can hear him really clearly because they're just just beside his room. And he says, "Take good care of him. I've got to go to Jericho, but I'll be back in a couple days. Here's some money. Should be enough. Make sure that he gets a doctor. And if he needs anything else, you just take care of it. I'll be back. I'll be back." And I'll repay you for any costs incurred. Well, this time, Levi couldn't fall back to sleep. He couldn't slip back into the darkness. He couldn't sleep at all. He laid awake all night long thinking, what do you do when your enemy loves you? What do you do when your enemy loves you? 
And even though he hadn't slept a wink, in the morning, he woke up. You see, he awoke a new man. And that's, that's the story of the good Samaritan. It's the story of a Samaritan who saves his Jewish enemy twice. He saved him from certain death. But he also saved him from hate. So after Jesus finishes telling that story, he says to the expert in religious law, now go and do likewise. Now go and do likewise. So what does that mean? What, what was this questioner, this expert that was looking for a loophole from loving his neighbor, what was he supposed to do with that story? What are we supposed to do with that story? You know, obviously it's talking about enemies. And we often listen to that story and we think, well, everybody's my neighbor. I've got to love everybody, which is true. But often that type of thinking is a loophole that takes us off the hook from actually loving your actual neighbor. Do you guys know what I'm saying? God calls us to love our actual neighbors, and, and, and we think, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm supposed to love everybody, and that generic kind of posture actually takes us off the hook from being responsible for anybody. But God is calling us to be responsible for our neighbors, for those who are beside us. Uh, when you came in this morning, you were, many of you were handed a little piece of paper. I want you to pull out that paper right now. If you have it, and if you don't have it, uh, it's okay, I'm going to show it to you on the screen here. And so this comes uh, out of a book called The Art of Neighboring. We called the series this, The Art of Neighboring, and then I found out later that there's actually a book called this. And I was like, oh, interesting. So I opened the book, and they had this in the book. I thought, this is a fascinating little exercise. And so this is an exercise, and it's not meant to shame you, but it's meant to Make us start thinking, do we actually know our neighbors? Are we actually in relationship with those who live beside us? And so imagine that square in the middle of your page is, that's where you live. And each of the boxes around that page represent those people that live in those houses, your actual neighbors. Now, I know you don't have a pen uh, at this moment, uh, but this is your homework for the week. Uh, but you will be able to do it mentally, I think, pretty quickly as we go through this. When you think of the people that live in those houses, under the point A in each of those houses, you would write down, write down the names of the people who live in the house represented by the box. If you can give first and last names, that's great. If it's only first name, that's fine too. So that's first level. Can you actually name the people that live in those houses represented by the boxes? Second level, B, write down some relevant information about each person, some data or facts about him or her that you couldn't see just by standing in your driveway. So not like, hey, so-and-so's got a yellow car. Well, you know that. Um, so-and-so's got an annoying kid that plays in the backyard. You already knew that. You don't have to know them to know that. So something that you would only know if you've spoken to that person once or twice. So that's second level. Third level, write down some in-depth information you would know after connecting with people. This might include their career plans or dreams of starting a family or anything to do with the purpose of their lives. Write down anything meaningful that you know about them. Uh, here's the fascinating thing. As 
And, and so that's your homework this week. I invite you to do that. Do that exercise. Uh, you know, as I sat there and pondered it, it was, I, I felt actually embarrassed uh, at my inability to fill in many of those boxes. Uh, and I realized that the box that it could fill in were people that look like me, act like me, value the same things as me, and that's not a terrible thing. Um, but uh, there's many neighbors that I don't know at all. So when this activity has been done, it's been uh, found that 10% of people that do this activity can fill out uh, category A in each of those houses. 10%. Either first name or first name and last name. 3% can fill out the category B for their neighbors. Less than 1% can fill in category C. So statistically, my guess is that many of you in this room don't really know your actual neighbors. Many of you do, and that's amazing. But when Jesus calls us to love our neighbor as ourself, what if he actually meant your literal neighbor? What if that's what he meant? You know, we got... It's, we think of metaphorically, you know, God, everybody is my neighbor and I'm supposed to be loving towards everybody. What if you actually meant the person that lives in the house next to you, he's asking you to love? He, could he have meant that? Maybe. Just, just a long shot. Maybe he meant that. And he's calling us to love these people, to not just know their names, not just know something about them, but actually to get involved in the very fabric of their lives. And often when Christians talk about this, you know, we start... You almost start feeling like your neighbors or your friends become a project. Like there's an ulterior motive to being friends with somebody. You know, I, I had a guy come to my door yesterday because he came to my door a couple of days earlier uh, as a door-to-door salesman. I think it's for Vivint. Is that how I say it? The security company? Vivint? And... Uh, and I came home one day, and Lisa's like, there's a guy coming back, you know, tomorrow in a couple of days, he wants to talk to you. I was like, oh, are you serious? She's like, I try, you know, I know you don't like talking to those guys, but I try, but he's super, super smooth. He's really, really good at what he does. And so all I could do is just say, you'll have to wait till my husband's home, and you can talk to him. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. And little background story, Vivint visited me a few years ago when I used to live in a different community, and they got me. And I told the story in a sermon one time, and I won't retell it, but uh, basically I, I, was, I was sold, you know, I was so impressed, and I was like, yeah, no brainer, I want to love my family, care for my kids, take responsibility. You know, I don't want bad guys to come in and take my kids away and steal stuff. I, I agree, I want to be a good parent and husband. You know, they just really get you, and and so I said, sign me up, because they were giving away all this free stuff on the front end, but what you don't see is the behind-the-scene costs. And uh, so I said, yep, and they had a guy in a van, like, right on the street, and they said, just a second. And as soon as I said yes, it's like, there's another guy in my door with, like, all the installation equipment. I didn't have time to, like, second-guess my decision, and they're drilling holes, wiring my house with all these wires. <laughs> and then Lisa got home, and I said... Guess what I did? <laughs> and then we started like looking through it as like, are you aware of like all the monthly hidden costs that you just signed yourselves up for? And, and they gave you like a few days to like back out of it. And, uh, and so I phoned the guy back and I was like, 
you know, now that I'm aware of like all the costs that you didn't tell me up front, uh, I just, you know, I'm going to choose to be a bad husband and bad father and you need to take out the security system. And so they showed up my house. They ripped it out of the wall. I had drywall over the, all over the place. I think, Eric, are you here? I think Eric Unruh, didn't you help me repatch that up? Uh, our electric guitarist this morning. Uh, anyways, they just ripped, my whole house is like in shreds. They ripped it out and, uh, and then left and my house was a mess. So that's the background. And then this guy shows up last night and he's, he says, did your wife tell, tell you I was coming? I said, yeah, she did. Uh, and I said, I'm not interested. He's like, interested in what? I said, ooh, good question. I said, I'm not interested in any of it. And he said, what do you mean by any of it? I was like, you know, like, any of, like anything that you have, I don't, I don't want it. So he's like, what do you think that I have? So he's like drawing me into conversation. And I just, I just told him the whole story that I just told you. I was like, this, you know, this is what happened to me, the hidden costs. You know, I'm not paying any, any money. I'm not, and... Uh, and so he starts asking me, he's like, oh, yeah, what do you do for a living? Well, you're a pastor, your wife heard you, I heard you say, right? And so he starts playing that card. You know, I, you know, I myself, you know, he was a Mormon guy. And I said, oh, I said, so you're used to this door-to-door thing, right? Like you're, you are, he, he, I was like, you did this for two years, right? He's like, yeah, I did. I was like, you are really, really, really good at this. Uh, my wife was right. But I'm sorry, you're not going to get any business at this house. And uh, slam the door in his face. No, I didn't. Um, but I, uh, I deflected. I'm not going to tell you where I live now that you know I don't have a security system there. But uh, this, I think when we think about loving our neighbors, we, we think as, as Jesus followers, like they become this project. Then we feel like awkward, like I have this ulterior motive. And, and let me just say that Jesus does not call us to an ulterior motive when it comes to loving other people. We do not love to convert people. We love because we're converted. We don't love to convert people. We love because we're converted. We love because the love of God has transformed us. And that's why we're called to love with no strings attached. Now, there's an ultimate motive that I have to my love. You know, of course, I hope that everybody encounters the reckless, crazy love of God. That is my ultimate motive. But I do not have an ulterior motive when it comes to loving people. God calls us to love people with no strings attached. So why don't we stop, step across the street? Why don't we respond to the need across the road? I think there's a few reasons I'm just going to run through really quickly here in our culture why we don't do that. Uh, Many of us are moving too fast to notice. We didn't even notice the guy lying on the side of the road because we are going to work. We're going to soccer. We're going to hockey. We're, we're always going somewhere. We're busy bees, which means we're too busy to be. We're too busy to actually be present. Do we live at a pace that actually allows us to be available to those that are around us? You know, John Ortberg said this. He said, love and hurry are f- fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time, and time is the one thing hurried people don't have. I am so guilty of this. I wear busyness as a badge. You know, people ask me, how's it going? I'm like, so busy. 
just trying to keep my head above water. I found myself saying that line, that line exactly like this year. I'm just trying to keep my head above water. I probably said that to a bunch of you. And it's like, this is my trophy. I'm so busy. And I was like, am I so busy doing the Lord's work that I've actually hurried past people that need to be loved and cared for that are my actual neighbors? Maybe I'm like the, the priest in the story I think sometimes we don't move across the street because of religious separation. We have this, maybe this idea of, uh, you, know, I, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus and I, you know, I don't want to uh, mingle with people that too much that have other values because I don't want to be contaminated. You know, that's part of what was in the story there. And there's some issues with the type of thinking that we're going to look at other weeks. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get into it. But that's one reason why often followers of Jesus don't know how to engage their neighbors is because they don't know how to be in a world that's not churchy. Maybe we're afraid of looking stupid. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of getting doors slammed in our faces. You know, the, the, the vivant, vivant, the vivant guy, I don't know which is a syllable, the accent there. Uh, he, I said, so is this hard work when we were talking? He's like, no, no. When I was, uh, when I was doing my mission... I was like, that was hard. I got the door slammed in my face all the time. I was like, this is really, really easy. Uh, but we're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of looking stupid. I, there was a few years ago when shortly after we moved in the house we're living in now where there was some kids that were going down the street on a bike ride and the one kid wiped out, skinned, skinned his knee. He was probably a junior high-aged uh, kids. And he was bleeding and all of his buddies laughed at him. And he's lying in the middle of the road, and his buddies just took off on their bikes, and this kid's crying, sitting on the road. And my middle son, Luke, uh, who was probably about seven, six or seven at the time, uh, looks out the window, and he sees what's happened to this boy, and he puts on his shoes, and I don't know what he's doing. He opens the door. He walks out onto the street, in the middle of the street, and he says, are you okay? And my dad heart just melts. <laughs> And the boy looks at him and yells at him. He's like, get away from me. I don't need your help. And obviously he's, you know, maybe five years older than Luke was at the time. And so Luke turns around, runs back in the house, and he's crying. Um, and I said to him, I was, like, that, I was like, Luke, that was so amazing. I love what you just did. Regardless of, what, regardless of how he responded to you, the fact that you would go out into the street, you don't even know the kid, that you would want to love him, you would want to respond to his hurt and his need, uh, I was like, don't ever stop doing that. And I think sometimes we're afraid of the rejection that people don't actually want help. They don't want to be loved. And so we just, we make that decision for them. But we cannot make that decision for them. Maybe you're afraid of going across the street, knocking on somebody's door, talking to somebody because you don't know their name. And that might sound like a really small thing, but it's not. Uh, if you are anything like me, there's people that you're like, I've been living here for six years and I don't know their name. I was like, six years is, I, I kind of, I passed the expiry date of being a good neighbor. Because uh, if I go and ask their name now, it's just going to look really, really, really awkward. Uh, can anybody, can anybody uh, agree, yeah, amen that? I, I find myself doing this all the time. It's like, I should know their name by now. And because I don't know their name, I'm just going to not talk to them. And we need to get over ourselves. <laughs> just to be honest, we need to get over ourselves and just go and learn people's names. It's okay. 
Maybe there's no obvious needs. I think that's a big one in suburbia. We don't see obvious needs of people because they're behind the garage door, they're behind their blinds, I can't figure out why, they're behind their door, and we don't see their needs, and so we don't know how to respond or help them. But every single one of us knows that there's hundreds of needs just beyond that door. If we can figure out a way to actually have that door open to us. So how do we open doorways into people's lives? Well, I think responding to felt needs, obvious needs, if there are those, can help. Shovel neighbors' driveways, mow people's lawns, that's an easy one. Throw a block party. We actually have access to a block party trailer. If you're like, I want to throw a block party in my neighborhood, we actually have one that we can hook you up with. Um, Everything included, everything you need in one trailer to throw a block party. Uh, Remember names. Remember somebody's names. Ask their name once, write it down. Do the name association game. Think of, that's what I do. I try to think of somebody else that has the same name as that. Um, and then it helps you kind of remember their name. Park in, park in your driveway, not in your garage. Just forces you to be outside for that little bit more. Park in your neighbor's driveway. Then you will for sure interact with them. Maybe, maybe you're a student, you're in school, sit beside someone new at school, in, in class, at lunchtime. Do something that's a little bit outside your box, not just always with the same people. Shared activities. You know, part of the way I, I built a relationship in particular with one of my neighbors, probably the best relationship I have on my street, is because we had a sh- I noticed that he was out cleaning his mountain bike all the time, and I love mountain biking. And so that shared activity became the vehicle that dr- drove our friendship in our relationship. Babysitting. Maybe your kids are old enough to babysit neighbors. Maybe their kids are old enough to babysit your kids. Uh, Find practical ways that we can actually open the doorway, so to speak, into people's lives to actually get to know them, to go from maybe just not knowing their name to knowing actually something deeper about them and eventually see that level C, uh, knowing what their passion and their dreams are. So for sure, loving our actual neighbors is... When Jesus says, love your neighbor, loving our actual neighbors, he can't mean less than that, right? He can't mean less than that. But I think he does mean more than that as well. Just really, really quickly here in Matthew 27, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. There we go. The entire law and all demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So similar teaching that Jesus gives there. He summarizes the Old Testament. Paul does the same thing in Galatians 5.14. For the whole law can be summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Leviticus 19.18, where it says in the Old Testament law to love your neighbor as yourself. And then we get to Luke 6, and it says, But to you who are willing to listen... If you're willing to listen, listen to this. If you have ears to hear, I say love your enemies. See, part of the offensive story that Jesus told that Trent beautifully recited for us was it was not only just loving your, na- your enemies, it was like this, this repulsive kind of love. Loving your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. The litmus test for loving God is loving your neighbor. And the litmus test for loving your neighbor is loving your enemy. You can say, I love God, 
And God would say, well, do you love your neighbor? And he'd say, yeah, I love my neighbor. God would say, well, do you love your enemy? Brian Zahn said that. Love God means loving others, and loving others means loving your enemies. Loving those who don't see the world quite like you see it. Let me ask you this question. When I pray, play this audio clip, <laughs> do you hear Yanni or Laurel? Laurel. 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 All right. How many of you guys heard Yanni? How many of you guys heard Laurel? If you haven't seen this video, it's like, it's like all the craze this week. How many of you guys see Yanni? How many of you see Laurel? Whoa. Lisa and I were like sitting there just arguing in our bed as we we're listening to this. It's like, it's Yanni. She's like, no, it's Laurel. It's Yanni. It's Laurel. It's, um, and then we like watched a whole bunch of videos on it. And apparently the... The recording is actually Laurel. Uh, but I, I hear Yanni. I hear Yanni. And I won't, you can watch videos on why our ears hear different things. Uh, can you love people that hear Laurel <laughs> when it's not what you hear? You know, we laugh at it, but we live in a world where people see and hear and understand the world very, very, very differently. And there's an incapability that just seems to be heightened at this time in history where we cannot get along with people that see differently than us. Where there are people that are literally our enemies. We're like, well, we live in Canada. We're friends with everybody. Um, that's baloney. We have, we, we have enemies. We have people that don't see things the same way that we see them. We have people that claim to be followers of Jesus, yet respond very full of hate towards people that don't see the world and understand politics or understand people or religion the way that they understand religion. And when Jesus gives us this command to love our neighbor, he's not, it's not conditional on them seeing or hearing or understanding everything the same way as you. It's loving them without any strings attached. Can we learn how to love without strings attached? Marion Williamson said, the way of the miracle worker is to see all human behavior as one of two things. Either love or a call to love. The way of the miracle worker is to see all of human behavior as one of two things. Either love or call to love. You find people that are unlovable, often it's because they're actually hurting. Every human being needs to be loved. The man in the story was saved two ways on that day. He was saved, his physical life was saved, and he was saved from hate. When Jesus invites us into a saving relationship with him, he invites us to be saved from hate, to be saved from loving with conditions. So I ask you, who have you hated? You know, I don't hate anybody. Well, who do you ignore? 
Who do you avoid? Who do you dread seeing? Who, when you go to the grocery store or to church, are you like, mm, I really hope I don't see that person today? Go to the soccer game. Who are you unwilling to let off the hook? Who are you carrying some frustration with or hurt with? Who are you speaking poorly about? Who do you need to love instead, meet with instead, connect with? Go into the lunchroom and sit beside. Forgive. Who do you need to start encouraging behind their back instead of talking behind their back? Are there people groups? So when we talk about even the Good Samaritan story, it's not even a story about an individual. It's a, they're stories about entire people groups. Are there people groups in your life that you have stereotypes and dare I say racism against? Do you know them? Do you know somebody from that people group? Do you know them by name? Is there a race that you need to connect with? Is there a political spectrum on the other side that actually God is calling you to love? Is there somebody in a different economic class? When Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, he calls us to love without condition because he loved without condition. He is the God that came from heaven to earth. And John 1 says that God came in, the, in flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I think that's how Eugene Peterson translates John 1. That God moved into the neighborhood. And when he died, that criminal's death on the cross, he, he prays and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He prays for his enemy. He loves his enemies. His heart breaks for his enemies. And so as we look at this series and we move forward, I want to invite you to let the love of God invade you and understand that God's not calling you just to love metaphorically. He's quite literally calling you to love your neighbor. But along with loving your neighbor, that also includes loving your enemies. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to close with the song that we sang earlier, Reckless Love. So when I think of overwhelming, reckless love, this uh, love with no strings attached. You know, part of, uh, you know, I think there's something for us individually in this. Um, uh, but also I think there's something for us corporately. And as I look ahead in a few weeks to serve day, uh, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for us to say, we want to love with no strings attached. Not just our individual neighbors, but as a community, we are going to love uh, our neighbors. We're going to love, uh, you know, uh, we have uh, chatted with high schools, the junior highs, the community center, MLA, uh, you know, different associations and groups about, you know, what are some of the felt needs in your areas that we can just love you, serve you in? And so the list that you guys saw handed around, that's what we got back from the community of Minapore and Sundance. You know, part of what gets me excited about the vote that's happening on Thursday uh, you know, is the opportunity to say this, to put our roots down and say, this is our home. And we're going to recklessly love those around us with no strings attached. And we pray that as they, as people encounter love, unconditional love, that they're actually encountering the love of Jesus in us and through us. So please, uh, 
uh, keep that in mind. And, and on June 3rd, uh, we invite you to participate with us as we serve Minapur and Sundance specifically on that Sunday. Uh, let me pray for you after the service. There's prayer teams available uh, at your, on your left and also in the hallway. We would love to pray for you. Uh, if you have never experienced this unconditional, reckless love of God, then I would encourage you not to leave this morning before you open your heart to Jesus and say, I want that. I want that in my life. And I want to pray for you as we uh, close the service. Father, we thank you for your reckless love. We thank you for this no-strings-attached kind of love. Lord, that you would move from heaven into our neighborhood, that you would take on flesh. Lord, that you would sacrificially give of your very self, knowing that people would spit on you, would reject you, would turn their backs on you, knowing that your love would not be reciprocated. But Father, we want to reciprocate it. Father, we want to love you back. We want to uh, pour our love and our worship back to you because you gave so much to us. And so God, we just open our hearts to you, to, to your love, to you, the transformation that you bring in our hearts that enables us to love our neighbors, that enables us to love our enemies, that enables us to have this, this love that actually isn't even human because it comes through your spirit. So Father, just overwhelm our hearts, come into our lives, teach us how to be good neighbors quite practically, but also teach us how to love those who seem unlovable, Lord, because every single person on this earth was made to be your son and daughter. We're made as bearers of your image. And Lord, you're calling us as a church to be a part of calling out that gold and calling them back home to be with you. And we say yes to that. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great week. We'll see you next week as we continue the series.